Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I got to a point in my late 30s where I had been around the block. You know, I'd worked in multiple countries on so many different types of businesses. And what I had just really consistently seen was that People of color were often left behind in the decision-making process. Where were we? I myself had struggled. There were so many times I can think of where folks who were tangibly doing less work were getting ahead, were getting an easier time through. And I just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I keep hearing the same narrative from leaders out there that they want to recruit, retain, and build better cultures for people of color. And they feel like we're not out there. And they keep investing in junior-level talent, which, again, you should invest in. But... What about the rest of us? There's a big disconnect. And so for me, building Hue was really about bridging that divide. My name is Fahad Khwaja, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Fahad Khawaja, a leading community builder who happens to be the co-founder and CEO of Hue, a culture and community platform that aims to amplify voices of color, to increase our visibility, and to pave a path for us all to rise. Fahad is someone I met years ago in the professional circles that I travel in, not the podcast ones. And he's always struck me as a thoughtful, mission-driven provocateur. But he's not out to shock, but to shake the system into action. Fahad has a deep belief that we build a better future by bringing the margins to the mainstream and doing well by doing good. His work transforms companies with purpose, product, and people at the core, bridging community and culture designed for diverse communities. His company, Hue, has propelled organizations to deliver sustainable growth, including Fortune 50 brands, unicorn tech startups, and top media companies and agencies. Look, if you've got any professional sway at your day job, you should be talking to Fahad and his team of what the small steps your company can be making and investing with you. Visit wearehue.org. We'll put a link in the show notes. And of course, a guy like Fahad has won all the awards, like the Ad Age 40 Under 40, the Drum Global Changemaker of the Year. And he's been recognized in the New York Times, USA Today, Fast Company, Business Insider, Ad Week, Ad Age, and the list goes on and on. But the thing that's always struck and, and stuck with me about Fahad and why I'm always drawn to conversations with him wherever I see him is just his really authentic manner. What you see is what you get, which sometimes isn't always the case in the realm of quote-unquote thought leaderships and speakers and all that. Uh, ironically, it wasn't until recently, just before recording this pod, that I actually learned where he was from standing outside of the subway. But honestly, it didn't matter because I always knew where he was coming from. We fixate a lot of this conversation on our conversations around 9-11 and growing up brown in America in a certain era, because it was transformational, not just for us as Americans, but for us as people of color. So let's jump right into this next of many conversations with my old new friend, Fahad. Fahad, welcome to the show. It's great to finally have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So buddy, uh, we've had a lot of conversations we should have recorded over the last two years. <laughs> and you're kind of infamous. But I guess the question to ask is, uh, where are you from? Am I infamous? Oh, man, I, I, I don't think I've heard that before. Is that a good thing? I guess. I think it's a compliment. I know I'm not answering the question. Okay, I'll take, I'll take it. You know, it's funny that you asked where I'm from because obviously we all get that question. We've gotten it a lot over the years. And whenever someone asks me that, I always have kind of the short answer and the long answer. So mm. uh, I'm going to kind of give you a non-answer for what it's worth, which is a where do I consider home? Mm. And where I consider home is where I am right now, which is New York. All right, but we inevitably get the second question then. 
where are you really from? <laughs> and how do you answer that? Yeah. And so, so I'll, I'll again go with the, well, do you want the long answer or do you want the short answer? So the short answer. This is answer, a podcast, man. I know. I know. You, you got, want the long answer. You got time. Yeah. So the, the short answer is understanding that you're really kind of asking, what's my background, right? Mm-hmm. What's my ethnicity? Where do I come from in terms of my origins? So my background, I would say, is, you know, my father's side of the family is born and raised in Pakistan. And my mother's side of the family is born and raised in Malaysia. I grew up around the Pakistani Malaysian or Malaysian Malaysian Malay? Well, her family is from what is now Pakistan, but at the time was not because they're about four or five generations deep at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, her father had moved there when he was a young man. And so, he, you know, his entire family and, you know, yeah folks have moved there since then. So yeah, it's, it, it runs pretty deep. Yeah. But then I grew up in neither of those countries, grew up around the Middle East, and then eventually moved to the States. And so that's why when I talk about where home is, home is where I am now. And, you know, New York City became home real quick after I moved. But the, the longer answer to where I'm from is, you know, it's sort of this, it's mix of these different places. But at the same time, I'm also kind of from none of them because... Yeah. I never really was from those places. You know, I'm someone who grew up as a third culture kid. And as you may know from folks who are third culture, it's really about sort of being grounded in experiences and people rather than places. And so when I think about where I'm from and that longer answer really is a mix of those different things and where do I consider home is where I am now and really also where my family and friends are. Well, when did you come over as a kid? Pretty late, actually. I, I moved here in my late teens and then really sort of came of age here. And, you know, it wasn't too long before, uh, you know, September 11th and, you know, a lot of the mm. challenges I had in my life and my career sort of came after that. But yeah, it, it wasn't super early, but a lot of the exposure I'd had early on in my life was to, you know, folks from different countries, different backgrounds. And so settling into the U.S. was impacted by that early exposure as well. Where, where in the U.S. did you wind up settling in the early 2000s? Uh, Syracuse, New York, um, also known as okay. um, the City of Lights, the center of the universe, the city that never sleeps. I think that's that's what they call it, right? I, I call it the home of dinosaur barbecue, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, also those things. Maybe I'm getting my cities confused. Yeah, no, dino barbecue <laughs> was delicious, and I'm a big fan uh, of that. Haven't had it in a long time, though. Are you kidding? We need, yeah. Dude, we need to be meeting up in uh, Harlem. I know. You know what? There's one in Brooklyn, too, which is not super far from where I am. So, yeah, we should we should meet up in either one of those. Absolutely. Well, okay. I have so many questions to unpack and ask there, things that you touched on. Like, you know, I remember the 9-11 era as a bearded Indian guy at college in Alabama, but it was towards the tail end of my academic tenure. So a lot of people knew me, right? But I had a handful of brown friends that I'd started to cultivate that weren't as well known around campus. And it was a very, um, you know, it was a very trying time. I hate to say it wasn't for me. I only had issues in the Atlanta airport for the next five or 10 years, but never in Tuscaloosa, but my friends did. And so, you know, Syracuse is more Alabama than Brooklyn, I guess. And and, and it's less about, I mean, because you would just come over, like, can you talk about, there's so many things that are happening. There's the um, cultural integration of, you know, new country, even though you're a man of the people, it's about the crowds and the communities you're in. But like, what was that like? What kind of community were you in? What were some of those experiences in, in the early 2000s coming into the United States in this kind of charged moment? You know, it's interesting because when I first came in, I really didn't know what to expect, right? And you never really know what to expect. And, you know, you're a It's kid. all like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Saved by the Bell. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was quite like that. Uh, I don't know. Was that your life? <laughs> That's what my dad assumed all the American kids I was hanging out with were like. <laughs> Honestly, you know, I'm sure probably a good a good number were, but yeah, probably not a lot. Uh, but no, but coming in, I remember um, it was being hit by just not seeing, frankly, as much diversity as I was used to. You know, and I'd grown up, grown up in a part of the world where I was going to school with kids who were American and Iranian and, you know, from all other places around the Middle East and you know, from South Asia, from Australia, from all parts of Africa. And so coming into a space where visibly what I saw was really different was more jarring than I think I would have expected. And it was something where, to be honest, I don't think that I really even registered it as much until some time had passed. And in particular, after September 11th, right? And at that point, by the time that happened, I was in college. And weirdly enough, 
I had enrolled in an Islam class at college, thinking at the time, oh, great, you know, grew up Muslim. This is going to be super easy. Boom, got this one on lock, right? <laughs> what nobody told me was that this class was really about sort of like scholarly pursuits and more of sort of like a, almost like a secular history and not actually what I would have expected. But in any case, you know, it was a class where I thought that I'd be really well positioned. But of course, while I'm in this class, this huge event happens that affects the entire world. I had direct backlash in that class, right? Within a day. Wait, who is, who's, who's taking this class? It's, you mean like the, the folks in the class? So, you know, it's interesting. It was a mix. So it was some folks who are Muslims, right? And again, being Muslim, like it's not necessarily just about an ethnic identifier, right? There were sure, people who sure. were black, who were brown, who were yep, white, yep, yep. who were American, who were people from other countries who had immigrated. So it was a, a mix of folks, really. And then there were genuinely just some people who were non-Muslim who wanted to learn, right? And who took the class because they were interested yeah. and wanted to just yeah. like get a better understanding, right? From whether an academic standpoint or any other standpoint. And so people came into it really with a lot of energy and curiosity, which obviously helps. But think about it, right? You start classes. That's like what, the end of August? Mm -hmm. And now within two weeks of everything starting, the entire world around you seems to change. And so, yeah, that, that backlash came to life in class, literally in the questions people were asking, in the way they were reacting. I mean, to the point where there was one person where, you know, he had a very, very negative reaction, a very, I would say, ignorant reaction, but frankly came from a place of fear that called people out. And I mean, he was calling people names. It was all well, what was the question? What was the type of question? What was I mean, asked? it was, to be honest, it was an example where, you know, we had to write an essay about something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, mm -hmm. you know, he was like really, really, you know, using certain terminology that I won't get into about like the prophet Muhammad, you know, about mm -hmm. Muslims, about this and that and the other, and like full on, you know, calling people terrorists and all of that. And just, he went from what had in those first couple of weeks been curiosity, interest in learning, being really open-minded to all of a sudden overnight, the rhetoric completely shifting because mm -hmm. all of a sudden what was in the news cycle was, oh. Freedom prize, yeah, nationalism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was, and it truly was, it was like overnight, the guy had seemed like this sort of soft-spoken very sort of thoughtful guy. And then next thing you know, you know, everything switched and it was just attack after attack. And me being me and, you know, to some extent being a little naive, but also to some extent not really being willing to sit around while people talk shit, I responded. You know, again, the naive part is probably like he could have gotten violent and I didn't realize it at the time, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I talked back to him. I explained things to him and I did it in a way that probably wasn't as friendly as I could have been. But at the same time... You didn't use your Terry Gross podcast voice. <laughs> uh, you know what? I didn't. No, not at the time. <laughs> but uh, where uh, I think I also found the balance of the, hey, being direct and, and really from a data standpoint, answering his questions, but also being really direct and forthright about it was, mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, I was involved with our Muslim Students Association on the campus. And so much of what we were doing there was about interfaith dialogue and about mm -hmm. trying to find ways to help people understand. And again, this is a common story, right? I was listening to the session that Azar Osman did with you guys, right? Mm. And how he talked about how, you know, he was doing these speaking gigs all over the country, right? Because all of a sudden, folks who did not understand Islam or Muslims mm. or what had happened mm -hmm. were mm -hmm. seeking guidance from any Muslim out there, right? And we've seen yeah. versions of this for everything since then, right? You think about the Black Lives Matter protests. Every community, about, yeah. Yeah, stop yeah. Asian hate. It's like, you're there, help us understand, right? And it's like, to some extent, yes, we can help you, but also to some extent, read a book, yeah. figure it out. Like there are other resources. Don't put the full burden on us to do that. And I remember this one thing in particular, and you know, maybe this is getting away from your question, but no, it's fine. I was in a class at the time where, you know, I was trying to decide where I wanted to go in terms of a major, right? And I'd come into school thinking I wanted to do advertising. I was really interested in it. I was kind of a nerd about it, but I always really loved writing. And I said, you know what, what if I actually took the journalism route? What if I actually went to the magazine world? You know, I don't know if you remember, but there used to be these things called magazines where they would be like printed on paper and people would read them. Do, do you remember that at all? I think so. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vaguely, vaguely. Yeah. So my professor one day, and again, this is days after that, I was in a magazine journalism class and the whole point was to research magazines, try to start to understand the editorial process, all of that stuff. And we're all sitting in a classroom and for sure, I was the only Muslim person there 
I was one of very, very few, even people of color, certainly the only immigrant in that classroom. And at one point he just looks at me and he says, hey, so, you know, this whole thing with the attacks on September 11th, like, yeah, like, what, what, what do you think? And of course, the entire class of 30 people turn and look at me and, you know, I'm, what am I, like 17 years old or something, right? And you're like, on behalf of the entire Islamic community. Yeah, but not even that. I mean, I was sort yeah, of yeah. like, well, well, what's the question? What, what, are, we, yeah, what are you asking yeah, me exactly? Yeah, yeah. And he was like, you know, yeah, just tell me, like, you know, what do you think about it? And I, I remember I, I gave definitely the most eloquent answer I've ever given, which was, um, it's, it's bad. Like, it was not a good thing. Like, what, what do you want me to say, dude? Like, what yeah, are you talking yeah. about? You're, you're a yeah, professor. Yeah. Your job is to try and like guide people, have a conversation. You yourself have been a journalist and this is the quality of conversation you're having about a topic like this with a classroom full of students. What are you doing? And so, yeah, again, all this to say that initial reaction taught me a lot about how people actually understand some of these situations, how people are thinking about things when it comes to not only just communities of color, but communities who are different than them, people who are different than them. How are they actually taking any curiosity that they've had? And when it comes to fear, letting the fear block their curiosity and openness to learning and instead creating a wall where instead they could have built a bridge. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a couple things to unpack here and I'm just, I really want to get your take on this. First, I think nationalism is a dangerous thing. I, I am very patriotic. I uh, more identify as more American than anything else, right? Because only in this world, only a few places in the world could kind of the existence I had have happened, right? And the choices I've made in my life. But I think the dark edge to that sword is it just sometimes makes us dumber and more crass to the world and to how other people must interpret the world. But I, 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 I want to jump in it. Let me ask you a question, and maybe I'm the one who took it here, or maybe you brought it up. As an American in our generation, right, like 9-11 is one of those seminal moments, because we all talk about where were you when it happened, etc. And I think you could have this conversation with almost any American. It shook our view of the world after, you know, living through relative peace and prosperity in the world where things didn't happen here, things happened there on CNN. But I think it was this bigger inflection point for the Muslim community because of, like, how you were perceived in America all of a sudden. Your identity actually became a thing, if that makes sense. That you had to justify, that you had to explain, that you had to take dumb questions about all of a sudden. I, or is it just, I keep asking Muslim guests this. I'm genuinely asking as a friend, like, should I, should I stop going down this territory? Because I feel like I have this conversation. But Or is it legitimately a thing that, that was kind of an impactful moment for you? Without question, it was an, an impactful moment. You know, to the point that you even made earlier, I've spent the last... 20 plus years being randomly profiled, right? Randomly checked at airports. Yeah. But you know yeah, what? It's yeah. not so random when it keeps happening every time you walk into an airport. And yeah. you've yeah. seen me, you've met me. I'm hardly someone who looks threatening in any way, you know, standing at five foot seven, like nobody's going to be afraid of me. But it was a pivotal moment because it affected so many of us, right? And it affected us mm -hmm. in ways that none of us expected. It brought to the surface a lot of the things that were going on beneath the surface in people's minds and in their hearts. And that does come to life in the way that they interact with you, right? Whether it's in the cafeteria or in the classroom or at work, wherever it is, it touches your life. And it's something that has a longstanding impact. So without question, it's something that's important to talk about. What I believe is also important to talk about is what else happened since then? Because yeah, yeah. What I've realized in, you know, my advanced age is that people have a short memory when it comes to big societal events and changes, right? And people sort of think that big moves have happened overnight, or in some cases, big things that affected entire communities never happened at all, right? And so, you know, one book I would highly recommend that folks read is a book called Islamophobia, Race and Global Politics by Dr. Nazia Kazi. I would definitely recommend you read that. Maybe I'll give it to you next time I see you. But that is a book that really also helps show what was going on in communities. You know, what was really happening? Where are there common threads over the years that connect so many different events that have happened that a lot of us may have been aware of, but may not have understood the connections between? So think about something like uh, Ava DuVernay's The 13th, right? And how it connected so many different things that are going on at a systemic level. This book that I mentioned gets into that. And so I think, you know, I could talk more about it, but I would say like, read the book and 
you'll get so much deeper into things than me, but it, it absolutely affected things. And I'd say again, for me, it really helped define the way I see myself through the lens of others, but it wasn't necessarily news to me. It was more increasing the scale and bringing to the surface things that, you know, to some extent I knew were beneath the surface. Yeah. I think the thing we have to do is zoom out, right? History has a pattern of repeating itself. Every song has ever been written, right? Like, and it's got to be more than what do you remember of that day and what happened afterwards, but zoom out, step out of your own body, step out of your own experience. Like what happened to everybody else because of that? You know, what changed? And I, I think we choose to not do the work or run the marathon of carrying through, you know, what worked and what didn't work out of it versus just, oh, this happened and that was a thing, bookmark. I think we don't spend enough time kind of reflecting on the impact of, of these things. Mm. So, so a couple of themes that have kind of come out, you've thrown the word journalist and journalism around. And obviously I know your career track, we had similar ones, you've chosen to do something else, which we'll talk about in a second, but like, what were you studying in school? <laughs> like, and, and what did you want to be when you grew up, either as a kid before you came over or, you know, once you are in school? What'd you want to be? What'd you want to do? As a kid, I wasn't really sure, but there were a couple of things that kept coming up. And it was some of the stuff that you hear from a lot of immigrants, right? It's that sort of like doctor lawyer path. But for me, the lawyer path was less of a, hey, is that something that you're expected to do? Or is it because I was really good at arguing <laughs> and really good at sort of, I think, taking in a lot of amounts of data and probably my family can tell you thought I was always right and was a bit of a know-it-all. So yeah. somehow it seemed like, oh yeah, the lawyer sounds like a good path. Let me, let me try that. But by the time I got to high school, I actually started thinking about advertising, which from what I've learned is kind of early for most people to start thinking about, hey, advertising is a career that I want to go into. But it, I want to grow up and be a brand manager. <laughs> yeah, which, which it wasn't that quite, but, but let me tell you what it was. So there was one of my, I don't even remember who it was, but one of my uh, fellow students in school, their dad worked for one of the big ad agencies. Uh, it was J. Walter Thompson, you know, at the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had never heard of them. I, to be perfectly honest, had never even thought of advertising as a job. It just never even occurred to me as a thing, right? But he came in and he talked about his job and what he did and how it all worked. And I remember my eyes just opening up and thinking, okay, I've been very creative for so much of my childhood. I loved drawing. I loved writing. I mean, I'd be making up comic book characters and things like that. And, you know, I'd be writing songs and performing them for my family, things like that, which nobody needed, nobody wanted to see. But that was me. That was what I was doing. And I was like, okay, I'll take the creative side of things. But I also like the idea that, you know, there is a real business side to it and that you could really make some money at it, you know, and that that's as far as I was thinking. I was like, you can be creative, you can make some money, you could actually have a job. Because as I thought about sort of my family and our, you know, our, our, broader family's definition of success. It's like, yeah, you want to go make money. You want to have a good job. You want to have a stable life. You want to be successful. And to me, it seemed like, oh, this could be the pathway to get there. And so early on, I actually did start thinking about that to the point where when I did eventually go to college right at Syracuse, that was the path. My parents, you know, we both ended up in the, the world of brand marketing. And that wasn't the path my parents saw for me. It took them a while, even a few years after kind of getting into it for them to understand, oh, he's he's doing fine. Look at this life he's leading and the things he's getting to do. How did mom and dad feel about it? Did they get it? You know, I again, I don't know that my parents have always known the depths of all the different types of work that I do, but uh, I've always had a lot of support from my family and they've, mm -hmm. they've been, you know, my number one fans for so much of what I do. And, you know, I really appreciate that because I know not everyone gets that. And especially if you're coming from, families that might be South Asian or Muslim or whatever it is, right. or, you know, a group that isn't necessarily the dominant one. So no, they, they've always been really, really supportive. And I never felt like I had a barrier to go do the things that I wanted. I truly believed growing up yeah. that if I put my mind to it and I do the work and I'm focused, I really can achieve anything. Now, having said that, as an adult, I realized that sure, there's a ton of barriers and I probably should have had a better sense of those early on. And maybe that's a miss from my upbringing, right? It just yeah, didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, they, they were really supportive. I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I can say this as a parent now. And my, my late uncle used to say, you know, do whatever you want, just do it really well. But I think as a parent, all you want is for your kids to, successful is the wrong word, happy, but 
success comes, you know, if you can put food on the table, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all that shit. And so I think it's different people have different ways of thinking through it. You know, once my parents realized, okay, I wasn't doing what they said, but I seem to be doing really well and I seem to be thriving, they became more okay with it. So I, I, I think it's almost like a spectrum of we all want the same thing for our kids for the most part. We just don't know how to get there. And some people think it's the only path is this and it takes other books a while. Yeah. And there's, there's cultural signals too. Right. And I mean, mm -hmm. and think about it. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, I would go back and, you know, when I was younger, visit Pakistan. Right. And my, my grandmother, mm -hmm. I had aunts there and whatnot. And, you know, we would spend a week or two at a time there, whatever it was. And there, there's these cultural signals of success too. Right. And so when you think about, you know, going to someone's house and like you're being encouraged to eat, right? Oh, eat more, you know, and when you don't eat, it's sort of like, wait, do you, you don't like us? You're insulting us? You didn't eat, right? And even things like where, you know, my grandmother, for example, would see me after a long time. And if I was like, you know, a little thin, right? And she would basically use the word like, kamzor, right? Like, which, you know, <laughs> which like effectively like translates to weak and like, you know, fragile, I guess. I don't know, like there's something along those lines. But it was like, no, I'm just, I'm a kid. I'm fit. I run around. I'm athletic. Cool. You know, <laughs> you know, that's it. Uh, but like, unless you were sort of visibly larger, let's say, right, you, you didn't come off as healthy, right? And these are all just signals that are cultural signals that also I sort of had to grapple with growing up where I was between these different worlds and having to process all this information from them and try and make sense of it. So I have to talk about work. I don't like to do this with our guests, but I, the, the reason we became friends is because of the thing you quit your job to do. And I have, look, in the intro, I've already probably talked about what Hugh is, but I guess the couple things I want to unpack with you is kind of that moment that you had to make the choice to do this. And how did it just become this non-negotiable, I have to do this? What was happening in your career and uh, and how did it lead to this? It was less of a moment than a series of moments over the course of years, to be honest. A lot of times folks can think, oh, you know what, there was this sort of one time where you said, I've had it, I've had it with corporate life, I want to quit, I want to go do my own thing. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I'm a bit of an accidental CEO and founder. I was a bit of a reluctant founder. I didn't expect to start my own thing. I didn't expect once I did start it for it to go in the direction that it did. And most folks who know me, you know, you know, I'd, I'd left the startup I was working at, uh, moved back to New York a few years ago. And when I was talking to various friends about, oh, you know, I might do this next, might do that next. Folks kept sending me ideas for being like a managing director or a CEO or this or that or the other. And I kept saying, no, thanks. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to be a CEO. I really love being an entrepreneur. I'm really good at sort of naturally building things within a company and expanding things within a company, right? But again, that's why they kept sending these ideas to me because they were like, hey, if you can do it internally, you'd probably love doing it externally. So none of this was my intention. But what happened is I got to a point where, you know, I was in my late 30s at this point and I had been around the block. You know, I'd worked in multiple countries. I've worked in multiple different types of corporations. So both really, really large multinationals in the US and abroad. I've worked at ad agencies. Uh, both big and small. I've worked on so many different types of categories of businesses. I'd seen a thing or two. And what I had just really consistently seen was that people of color were often left behind. And that's not just in terms of representation visibly in marketing, right? Which so many folks talk about so often, but in the decision-making process, where were we, right? And I myself had struggled. There were so many times I can think of where folks who were tangibly doing less work than I was, we're getting ahead, we're getting more access, we're getting an easier time through, we're not having to work as hard. And again, these are things that affect your health mentally, physically and beyond. And I just got to a point where I was like, you know what, I keep hearing the same narrative from leaders out there that they want to recruit, retain and build better cultures for people of color. And they feel like we're not out there and they keep investing in junior level talent, which again, you should invest in. But what about the rest of us? What about those of us who are three years in, five years in, 10, 15 years in? Why are we continuing to face these struggles? Meanwhile, you believe that we don't even exist. There's a big disconnect. And so for me, building Hue, the organization that I started, was really about bridging that divide and making sure that the people who should be connecting are connecting. And so that was really the, the kind of thought process that led to that. 
so it wasn't an overnight thing. It was it was kind of this slow burn that got you there. It was it was frustration, you know. I mean, it, it was frustration. It was really yeah, just. Yeah. I, I mean, I I'll, I'll give you one one sort of data point. Let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Nearly every single job I've ever had, when I left that job, I was backfilled by two people, or in some cases, it would be. I was backfilled by a more senior level title into that role. Or sometimes it was a mix where it was two people. One was a more senior level and one was the same level. However, when I was there asking for the promotion, when I was there suggesting a whole new org structure, when I was there suggesting a team and being told, yes, everything is right. You're saying the right things. Everything is right. But I wasn't actually getting the investment. I wasn't getting what I asked for. And I ended up moving on. Why was that happening, mm-hmm. right? Why was that mm-hmm. happening? And so I just got to a point where I said, you know what, I'm tired of seeing the same cycle repeat and not just for myself, but my friends, my coworkers. I've seen so many instances where even when I tried to hire people on my team where I had worked with them, I knew who they were, I knew what they were about. In one case, I had even written a job description for a role that we needed where I had a specific person in mind when I wrote the description and I was vetoed by my manager in favor of, frankly, the same you know, milk toast type of talent that we'd had before. And so uh, this came from a point of frustration on something that had been building for years. There's a very successful entrepreneur that told me once, like he invests in, he, he, two types of uh, entrepreneurs come across his desk. The, the kind who are just kind of doing something because it's a cool thing to work on and the kind where they can't live in a world where that thing doesn't exist, right? And obviously he says he invests in the latter. It seems so obvious. And while I don't, think I have what you have to go strike out and build something other than say a podcast or a comic book. I choose those are the founders that I want to spend my time with, that I want to work for, work with in terms of partnerships or meet and learn from. Um, Why didn't this exist in the world before? That's the big question. That's the big question. Because when I showed up here, I showed up with no resources. You know, this is not a massive VC backed business. You know, this is this is not what we're doing here. You know, um, it is a business. It does require work and services and partnerships and all of those things that any any clients and does. revenue. Yeah, sure, all the things. But it's it's hard to say. There, there's multiple reasons, right? One is it's really hard to move status quo. Yeah, just in general, yeah, right? Yeah. And I can say this because. So much of my job over the years has been shifting the status quo in the various jobs I had in the various yeah, companies. That yeah, I had. Yeah, and just yeah. any sort of change management is hard. But it's hardest when the people internally don't actually benefit from that change, right? And the folks in charge don't benefit. And so to me, it's been a mix of passive and active engagement in not helping something like this exist, right? And saying, you know what, we're just going to rest on our laurels. We have these established processes and systems and we think we're working. But actually, did you look at the data? Did you notice that in the last 10 years, no one has moved the needle? Did you notice that when you look at the corporate level, the C-suite, the VP level, the senior manager level, the numbers are still massively different versus what representation should look like at the leadership level, right? And to be clear, what we're talking about is not that all people of color should be leading every single company in every single way. What we're talking about is at minimum representation. So if you know, 40-ish percent of the nation um, and the workforce in in turn are people of color, then why are at leadership levels at max all people of color combined only about 13 to 14 percent, right? Right. A third of that, right? The numbers should match, right? We should we should reflect the society we serve and the society we live in. Exactly. Yeah. And I think for me the the key differentiator was two things, really. One was networks, right? Let's focus on networks. It's not just about creating some sort of a program or a one-off or doing a diversity training. Mm-hmm. All of those things are important, but that's not enough. Creating a network is what makes a difference because you know what? The guy who got the promotion is the guy who went to the barbecue. Who was in the house. Who was in the house. Yeah, exactly. Who got hired was, you know, so-and-so sorority sister, blah, 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 right? We, we know that this is how stuff works. None of this is news. Well, then why don't we have a network-based system that leverages what already exists? Why are we trying to just do the same old things? Or why are we trying to create entirely new solutions? For me, this was actually creating a solution that was based on the way that we all already connect with one another. We already leverage networks. Let's just start expanding our networks and doing it in an intentional way 
so that we can actually make some real progress and stop complaining about the same stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of, if you had a magic wand, what has to change. For Hugh specifically, is success the end point or what does actual success look like? How will you know that, I don't want to say you made it, but that this thing you did was the thing to do, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, et cetera. I can speak a little bit about now as well as, you know, sure. a few years from now. It's, it's, it's kind of hard for me to even say 10 years from now, to be honest, because the pace of what's happening right now in our world is changing so quickly. It's moving so fast. I mean, even if you think about the last three years, right, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, the way people think about work has so dramatically shifted, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's, it's hard for me to even think about what, what could 10 years look like. But here's what I'll say. In the near term for us, what's really important is to continue to do what we're doing. And what we've seen works really well is building these networks, is bringing people together and creating a support system so that they have a real community, right? It's really about community, connection, and building trust with people who are different than you and really starting to say, you know what? Human to human, person to person, this is where we have common threads. There are always going to be nuances of what makes us different, and those are important, but those are more about celebrating and understanding but bringing us together based on what connects. And so to me, the success is we continue to get really, really good feedback from people in our community in terms of companies that we work with, in terms of members of our community and so on. Five years down the line, if we're doing that at a bigger scale <clears throat> and in a way where we're seeing that we're just having an easier time having these conversations and it gets easier and easier over time yeah, yeah, yeah. to the point where actually the type of work we're doing is so well integrated that you kind of don't even need a specialty organization like this anymore because the work just becomes integrated. Yeah. That actually could be a great world. And, and to be clear, I'm not saying that it's a world where it becomes kind of this all lives matter approach where it's like, hey, the nuance is gone and you're not able to focus on specific groups. Yeah, yeah You absolutely yeah. should focus, but it just becomes part of what you do. Think about it in terms of even how folks talk about marketing, right? And they're like, oh, digital this, digital that. It's like, well, no, it's, it's just called marketing now because everything is digital. Yeah, yeah. We've had this conversation on this podcast with a few different guests. I think the fallacy that America has is this idea of the melting pot. And I think sometimes what, say, Singapore, Malaysia, Canada get right is the UK is the mosaic, right? It's like the identity doesn't get lost. It doesn't all have to cowtail into the way it's done into a monoculture, right? We shouldn't lose that because that that's kind of the competitive advantage we have is the differences are the strengths. Uh, one other kind of like work related question. So back to the magic wand, right? What's the barrier? What's the bottleneck? What's the one thing that if you can wave a, wave a magic wand and, and be tactical, be specific, like that, that just kind of gets in the way every day from doing the thing, you know, you're trying to build you to do. Hmm. There, there's two things. So one is awareness. And then the second is action. Hmm. When I talk about awareness, what I mean is, do people out there, and when I say people, I mean leaders, functional heads at companies, CEOs, COOs, you know, heads of HR, heads of DEI, all the things, right? But the people who are really driving these businesses, mm. do they fully understand what's going on and how important these issues are? Because to me, it's actually not a question of terms like diversity, inclusion, equity, access. It's not about those words. It's actually about building a future. Mm. And do they understand that it's about building the future? Do you know what I mean? And so that's, that's what I mean when I talk about awareness. If we can get more people out there to understand how important these issues are, and especially as you look at that next generation, Gen Z and beyond, these values are so important to them. And if companies are reflecting their values by building a lot of these programs and, and situations in earlier, yeah. that will be a big game changer. That's really going to make a difference. So that, that's one key piece. The action piece is what's second. And it's don't just talk a good game, actually do something, make it happen. And so we're fortunate in that we've worked with a few partners over the years where they get it, you know, and they are committing and they are coming to work with us and saying, you know what? Yeah, we want to run events where we get to meet people. We want to show up in all these different ways. We want to showcase that what we're building internally is what we're reflecting externally. It's not just about a performative message that we're going to put out there. It's not a black square. It's not a brown washing. Yeah. 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 It's not a diversity report we're going to publish. And then we're like, great, check the box. Boom. Everybody's great. Celebrate. Let's go party. Yeah. That's not what it's about. It's it really, it's real action. And real action to me is continuous. 
It's not a one-off. It's not a conference. It's not an award ceremony. It is truly day in, day out. What are you doing? How are you changing the conversation? How are you expanding on that conversation? How are you actively making sure that the people within these organizations, which again, we talk about organizations like they're a thing on their own. No, they're part of our lives every single day, right? Brands are part of our lives every day. So many institutions are part of our lives and they're all made up of people. So if all these people are able to communicate in a way where we are actually on the same page and we have a common goal that we want to build towards, we're building towards this future and we actually have actions that reflect that, mm -hmm. that's the key. And again, I'm giving you these like broad answers, right? But like, that's what I mean. And I'll give you one example of an action, right? A company that we're talking to, right? will say, yes, you know, we agree with everything you're saying. We see the data. We understand the situation. We actually also understand how urgent some of these things are, where if we don't act today, we're going to lose a ton of trust with all our stakeholders internally and externally. And on top of that, we're just not going to be set up for this future that is, you know, rapidly thrust upon us, right? Okay, great. So you understand all those things. What are you doing about it? Well, you know what? We don't really have any budgets. <laughs> You don't have any budgets. You just told me that this is a big priority for you and that sustainability and creating yeah. a path towards having a future for your entire organization and business model, this is key. But you're telling me you have no investment? Okay, how much did you just spend on this, you know, ad that you created? Oh, like a yeah. million dollars just to create the thing? Okay, cool. And you're not willing to spend more than, what, $4,000 on working with a company to do something? And of course, I'm making up the number of 4,000, but frankly, there have been instances right. where... Or it's orders of magnitude, right, right? Yeah, but I mean, there are instances where we talk to companies and they're like, oh, $500, we can't, we can't pay for like a job posting. And I'm like, all right, guys, well, then the words that are coming out of your mouth are not actually valid. You're not actually willing to invest. So don't tell me that you're willing to invest when you're not. You have to really put your action behind your words. If we could zoom out and go all the way back, you know, pre-Syracuse... I don't know, little kid watching late night TV when he's not supposed to. If you could uh, send an email or a text or just have a quick conversation with that kid, what would you tell him? Well, the first thing I think I would say is, hey, this is an email. Uh, an email is this thing <laughs> that you get where it's electronic. It, I can't really understand how it works, but trust me, you'll you'll use a lot of it when you grow up. So I'll start there. Okay. And... I don't know. That's a good. That's a good question. I feel like I have to think about that. Can I? I, I know this is not about you, but what would you? What would you tell, tell yourself? Oh man, you know we always offer to guests like to ask us the question, <laughs> and they never do. And I, I hate you right now. I hate you, and I love you for doing that to me. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> for so many people answering this, I mean, I had my own anxieties. I continue to. It's a, it's a daily practice to keep them out of my head, to keep the demons out. Right? What my insecurity, what the keeping up with the Joneses is. And I think it'd be that. It's not the classic, it gets better because, man, things are so fucking good in a perfectly imperfect way, right? The fact that you and I get to have this conversation. I get to talk to people like you and the things I do and family, blah, blah, blah. But it would be, um, don't let that shit get to you, you know, the, the keeping up with the Joneses. Later on, before I ever found happiness and realized happiness, that was the desire. It wasn't for XYZ material thing or material relationship. It was just... I want to be happy and happiness is not in seeking happiness. Happiness is in being, you know, and the, the only way you can do it is to just ignore the other shit and the other noise. And I, look, I think the hardship is necessary to shape yourself and your appreciation of the world. But um, yeah, just get rid of the noise, ignore the noise. Mm. There's so much. And what, what would you say? <laughs> well, I, I think for me, <laughs> I think for me, uh, my naivete was actually an advantage. Mm -hmm. The fact that I didn't necessarily know that some of these barriers were out there actually helped me keep a really open mind and have no struggles in connecting with folks. And that was something that was just very natural to me. I was curious. Yeah. I did want to learn about other people and I was surrounded by people from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, understanding how their language was different, their culture was different, their religion was different, and very importantly, their food was different, right? And just, mm. I'm a big food fan. I just want to go show up at your house and eat your food. You know, thanks <laughs> thanks for the invite, you know? So <laughs> to me, I think just the fact that I wasn't aware of those barriers helped. And again, that's in your upbringing, right? The, the fact that you can grow up and in your early days, just not think about those barriers as a kid. But then the older you get, you're sort of told that, oh no, 
you should have these barriers. These are things that should keep you apart, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, that naivete earlier, early on helped. And so I actually don't even think I would warn myself about the barriers. I, I don't know that I would do anything different in those early days other than maybe say those early relationships that you're building, make sure to keep them. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I'd love to still be in touch with some of the kids that I had gone to school with early on where, you know, we've all moved to different parts of the world at this point and we're really spread out. And, you know, back then we weren't all connected digitally, right? And even mm -hmm. since then we've been able to, but yeah, I think that's more what I would say. Like focus on those relationships early on where you've got those, find a way to stay in touch because you feel that value later, right? I mean, what used to be writing a letter became sending emails, became sending texts, you know, being on right. social media. Right. And some of my oldest friends, the, you know, the few that I've stayed in touch with, like you still have that connection years later. And that I think makes everything easier as you go forward. Yeah. But I mean, it's, we've had so many like chance interactions where we run into each other and I feel it always ends up at the bar. You and I having this longer conversation that we're finally, you know, putting microphones to. I want to keep talking, but we're almost out of time. I don't know. Do you think you're ready for a speed round? <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be ready, but but I'm but I'm down. Oh, I'm, it's like you've listened down to the podcast. Do it. You know the right answer. Exactly. I'm down to do it. I'm down to do it. All right. All right. All right. What is one thing about you that no one expects? That I've been rock climbing in Thailand and that I just decided to do that one day and had never thought about it. And the first time I went up, I actually fell off the mountain a bit, but then just got back up and did it again. I think there's a Chumbawamba song about that. <laughs> what is a, uh, a book or a movie that has a book, movie or film that has characters you relate to? That's a good question. I know this is the speed round, but I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Last good book, film, movie? The last one. You know what? There's a book called Roses in the Mouth of a Lion by Bushra Rahman which was a book that I had read recently, which, which was great. Why? So it's written by this woman who was Pakistani-American, grew up in Corona, Queens, and was just talking about her experience growing up. And it was one of those things where so many of the stories that she was telling, I related to, you know, in terms of family connections and, you know, the experience of being this person who's sort of between worlds and, you know, having right, one background right. and being in another space. So I think that actually probably was the one. Yeah. What's your favorite mom dish? Something called rendang. It's a Malaysian dish. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had it. Beef rendang yeah, yeah, or chicken rendang. Big fan of that. How's your mom make it? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, I mean, <laughs> I actually... It's just good. Well, yeah. I mean, my mom used to make it when I was a kid. And then like my, my aunts and like everyone, it was like everyone makes it. It's a very yeah. you know well-known Malaysian dish. But yeah, I, I, I think I tried making it once and it was just a complete disaster. And that's about as far as I got myself. But... You know, yeah. next next time we meet up in uh, Soho, we should go to Nyonya, a good Malaysian joint. I've, I've been to that place. Actually, I'm going to recommend another one. And I'm, in, you know, for, oh, for anyone yeah. who's in New York, like there's a great spot called Love Mama in the East Village in Manhattan. We're doing it. That, that's the next meetup. Fantastic. Great place. 11th and 1st. Go check it out. Sorry, 11th and 2nd. Who's someone out there that you would want to talk to on a podcast? It's just you, Roman. It's just you. That's it. Oh, no. Yeah, no, you're 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 the one. That's that's unacceptable. I, I need I need the I need the bucket list conversation. The only reason I do the podcast is I can talk to interesting people. Yeah, yeah. And and say, oh hey, interesting person I admire. I, I'm a creep if I just ask you for a one hour conversation, but I'm cool if I ask you on the podcast. So give me one of those people. Oh man. Gosh, I feel like I really didn't prepare for this one. Just one person I'd want to talk to on a podcast. Mm, I think Noam Chomsky could be interesting. What, what would you ask him? What would I ask him? Oh God. Follow-up questions. Honestly, I, I think uh, I would. it would probably be less about the work and more about just sort of the personal side of things because trying to get a feel for sort of like, how do you just like function day in, day out? Like, how do you take care of yourself? Like, what's worked for you in your life just as, as a human? Because I think so many of us spend so much of our energy in work and we often underinvest in our health and you know, I don't know enough about him. I don't know why yeah. he came yeah. to mind of all people, <laughs> you know, or even someone, you know, actually would have been really interesting. Someone like an Edward Said, okay. I think would have been really interesting as well. Um, obviously, like amazing intellectual. But yeah, just just someone where I feel like I'm so in awe of the type of work that they've done or mm -hmm. produced and to get a feel for sort of like behind the curtain, how do you think 
how do you how do you live your life? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 What does what does being a modern minority mean to you? <laughs> so I feel like this is a plant question. I know you always ask, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you and I talked a little bit about this before. I, I'm not a fan of the word minority, and this is something you've heard yeah. before as well, right? Yeah. The idea that actually we're the global majority. And I think the only time I've ever even referred to myself as a minority is on this podcast right now. <laughs> so you're welcome again. But, you know, to me, what it really is about is redefining yourself. And what often happens is we define ourselves through the lens of how others see us. Mm. And what's more important to me is making sure that I'm able to define myself and that each of us are able to do that through our own lens and are able to actually say, this is who I am today, who I want to be tomorrow, and this is how I'm going to pave a path to get there. And for us to all have the self-awareness, the adaptability, and the sort of openness to going on that journey with ourselves and with others, that is really, really important. And I feel like that's like a bit of a maybe philosophical answer to that, but that's what I think about. It's sort of like we're in a world where we are in control of our own path. We are in control of our destiny and we have the power to bring other people with us who are like-minded and who are going to support us and be a community to help us get there. And so that that's what I would say. Yeah, I I, I love the the contrarian framing. But, you know, the conversations we've always had, if there's one word, I would say it's it's always thoughtful, but at the same time provocative. And I think there's an authenticity to the way you're doing it and the way you're kind of building your work and kind of getting the word out. So I just, I'm glad we put one of these on tape, but I already am looking forward to the next couple, maybe over some Malaysian food. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the pod, buddy. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, and, and that's a definite yes on the food. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Love.